did I not see this coming? Welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. This is your host, Lindsay, and I'm excited to ring in, well, not ring in, to end, what's the ring out, (laughs) ring out the new year or the end of the year. Gosh, I don't even know how to say this. With this podcast, this is the last episode of 2019. There it is. That's what I needed. And uh, I'm really happy to have some friends on talking about one of my favorite topics, Mormon polygamy. Before we get into that and before I introduce those, I just want to thank everybody who's listened this year and been so supportive. I know it's been a really emotional year for me and some of you have been so amazing. And after I was very vulnerable on the podcast, you know, I got so many nice, nice things, which uh, is better than like blood atonement death threats that I sometimes get. So thank you for not threatening to blood atone me today. I really appreciate that. And uh, yeah, thank you for all the listeners who's been on this journey. As you know, this is a very unique podcast. I I can't believe it's as popular as it is. I just got an email from iTunes and it was in the top 100 podcasts on iTunes, which I don't know if that's good or not. It felt good. And yeah, it's been, it's a weird, weird uh, podcast, but I really appreciate everyone that listens and all the non-Mormons that listen. I can't imagine what you think of all this crazy Mormon world, but I You know, I was just talking with our guests earlier about how diverse this podcast is. It's really great because we have so many LDS people, ex-LDS people, fundamentalists, ex-fundamentalists. And it's so amazing how this podcast has sort of brought these communities together and opened up a dialogue to talk about our shared history because we really do have more in common than, than some of us like to admit. And that can be a really beautiful thing. And then we have all those Gentiles out there listening again. And that just blows my mind why you would even pay attention to this because it's crazy living in it. And I'm sure it's crazy hearing about it. But Thank you, and I hope you all have a very happy new year, and I look forward to making more podcasts in 2020. More about polygamy. Okay, so today uh, we're going to do an episode that we've been actually working on a while. This is one of the fun things about the podcast. So I will be talking about women and, you know, trying to highlight, amplify their histories. And then someone will contact me and say, I think you talked about my ancestor. And so we'll connect. It's gotten a lot of people into family history. That's been really rewarding because this this is a work of love for me. I love Mormon history. I think it's so insane, but I love it so much and I love talking about it. And so it's so great that this podcast has inspired people. And so that's kind of how this episode came to be. So I'm going to introduce some people. First of all, I'm so happy to have back on the Year of Polygamy podcast, Brian Buchanan, who is also my co-host for the Sunstone History Podcast, Brian. This is my sixth time on the podcast, and I'm just now realizing last time I didn't get my five-timers jacket, so I'll assume it's out at the official Year of Polygamy tailor shop somewhere. So, And if you like jokes like that, he's got plenty more of those at the Sunstone History Podcast. And Chad Miller. And my other guest is someone who met we met th- sort of through Mormon history stuff, talking about fundamentals history. So... Chad, can you say hello, Chad Miller? Hi, how are you guys? 
Uh, we're good. I was kind of hoping you would explain how this episode came to be. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And first, I wanted to say I've been listening to the Sunstone Mormon History Podcast uh, with all your episodes, and it's been awesome. So it's good to have you both on uh, to be able to talk to both of you. Yeah. So, you know, just to kind of introduce the the topic or, uh, you know, how, how I'm on here with you sharing this story today. As I As I was going through my own faith journey, I guess, maybe a year and a half or so ago, and uh, up to present, my mom actually, um, in conversations about the church and just, uh, you know, learning about the history that was a little different than what I had, uh, had been taught. Um, my mom brought to me a family history story. She's actually always been really into family history. And it's kind of weird how I wasn't really into family history much until, you know, kind of having a little faith journey here of my own. But uh, my mom brought this story to me and it was just it, it was just so interesting uh, to read through one of my relatives stories and I didn't really realize when I started reading through it that it was uh, it was linked to to one of the apostles and and how this all uh, would kind of tie together but when I really read through it and understood it I kind of understood that there's a little more significance to the story so um, I had been listening to the year of polygamy podcast and some other podcasts and then I just went to the Sunstone office and, and met you in person and, and brought the story to you. And you both, Brian and you were there and you looked like kids in a comic book store when I brought it. So it really was. I was so excited when you brought it into me. I said the first thing I think I said was I need to call Brian. <laughs> but you came over because, you know, it was at first was a service project. What was it? Uh, it was like your opening. Uh, wasn't it like the Sunstone? Oh, our open house. Yeah, it was yeah. our open house. Yeah. And you came in and it really was like Christmas. I love it when we find stuff like this because some some of the stuff you can find online or in archives, but really the, the missing stuff are in all of your aunts and grandmothers like basements or file cabinets or your mom's like photo books. That's the stuff we're looking for. So if you're out there listening and you ever do hear a name or come across something like that, you should be turning this in, turn it into the church, turn it into the University of Utah Library, get it there, take it to the DUP, get it somewhere so historians and researchers can find it because we've, we are all looking for this. And so I'm really excited to talk about this today. So you, you mentioned an apostle. Why don't you tell us whose history we're going to talk about today and the apostle in connection with this woman? Sure. Okay. I'll start by kind of connecting it with the person that I remember from my childhood that that's directly related to her first. So um, growing up in San Diego, California, uh, my great grandmother, uh, my family, I guess for several generations, got married fairly young, pretty young. So, you know, I, I actually uh, met my great grandmother, had sleepovers at her house when we were growing up. And probably a lot of my memories are based off of like a few home videos and pictures of playing with Legos on her floor and whatnot. But my grandmother, um, her name is Florence uh, Rosa or Rosha. Um, well, that's her married name, but her, her maiden name was Bergener. Her mother is, uh, who we're speaking about, her name is Lenora Taylor or Mary Lenora Taylor. Her nickname uh, was Nora. Uh, they called her Nora often growing up. And, and, uh, and then when she was uh, older, they called her Noni. That was her, her nickname. But this is, uh, this is about Lenora Taylor or Mary Lenora Taylor, who was a wife, a uh, post-manifesto wife to... Uh, Apostle Matthias Cowley. Brian can probably tell us more about that, what number of wife wife she was. Yeah, Brian, why don't you tell us just a quick and dirty story about Matthias? So Matthias is a name today that a lot of 
LDS listeners might not be familiar with, but I would guess far more fundamentalist listeners would definitely be familiar with. So he was an apostle toward the end of the 20th century and then beginning in the beginning of the 20th century, who was then dropped from the quorum as part of the fallout from the Reed Smoot hearings. Norris' story is actually a very big part of him being dropped from the quorum. So we'll uh, we'll get into his story, but he was a, a fascinating, charismatic guy and well-loved and well-respected, and then he disappeared from LDS scene. And can I say something about him that is... Um embarrassing and offensive and probably offensive to your family, but he's really handsome. <laughs> I've always thought that like whenever I see his family photos, I'm like that guy right there. Like I have to interrupt you and tell you that as we go through this story, um, uh, Lenora Taylor, Nora did not feel the same way that you did about him. Um, <laughs> in fact, uh, on multiple occasions, she really goes into detail about how she despised not only the idea of polygamy from an early age, but also really tried to avoid him at all costs as she learned of his interest in her. Didn't she talk about his smell? Did I read that? I don't remember anything about his smell, but I don't know. It's possible. There's about 21 pages here. This, this was all typed out by her on her uh, later in life on the, on the top of this, it says, you know, Lenora's story uh, estimated to be written in 1958, covering 1886 to approximately 1912. Family history of Lenora Taylor written by her. Um, And I understand, uh, well, it goes on, it says, this is the story of my life, which I am writing, especially for my son, Claire, since he has expressed a desire for it. And then she goes into her, her family history and kind of how, you know, how she, how she and her family were the original settlers in the in colonial Juarez. So before we get into the story, I was going to see if Brian could talk a little bit more about her childhood and her early days, if that's okay. Perfect. And um, I'm just, tr- is there anything else we need to say about Matthias? Like the town of uh, Cowley, Wyoming is named after him. And apparently I just read on Wikipedia that he had a son that was a famous FBI agent. So that's kind of cool. But the reason why I want to talk more about him, you know, I try to highlight the stories of women, but he really is a very important part of this history, not just uh, Lenora's history that we're going to talk about today, but Mormon polygamous history. He was an apostle who had a very prominent role in sort of the history of how the LDS church separates from the practice. And we've talked about him a lot on the podcast, but we've never really gone into detail about him. So, Brian, can you sort of help us out? So, Matthias F. Cowley was born in Salt Lake City in 1858. This is interesting. I'd forgotten about this. He was Matthias Jr., but his father actually drowned right before he turned six, so he actually never went by Matthias Jr. because he was the only Matthias at that point. So, his, um, his middle name, Foss, is important. So, his mother was a Foss. And then his grandmother was Sarah Carter, and her younger sister was Phoebe Carter, who was Wilford Woodruff's first wife. And that's a connection that will come up again and again in Matthias's life. And his birth was just one of many of his life events that would be part of the larger Mormon history that's going on around him. So his parents had just returned to Salt Lake after they had gone to Springville as part of the move south with the Utah War. Interestingly enough, their neighbors, who had also gone to live in Springville, were John Taylor, the Apostle, and Sophia Whitaker, and their son, John Whitaker Taylor, who was born three months before Matthias down in Springville, was a lifelong friend of his. They went on missions together. This is actually the second mission for Cowley. 
Um, they were companions for a time. And this was really interesting. Uh, later, there was an article about Matthias that appeared in a newspaper. And after he saw it, John W. Taylor wrote him a letter and said, quote, I believe and by the spirit of prophecy, when I say, if you are faithful, you will yet become one of the 12 apostles. So this is John W. Taylor's revelatory streak cropping up. So Cowley, after he gets home, is called on a very different kind of mission, and it was to solicit subscriptions for the contributor, which was the um, YMMIA magazine. So not proselytizing, but subscription mission, kind of weird. He actually got a salary that was kind of a commission-based thing for it. And as part of these trips, one of the places he went to was Hiram in northern Utah. And while he's there, he meets a woman named Abby Hyde, who was a school teacher. She was 20, Matthias was 25, and luckily for us, Abby kept a diary. And sometimes it's diary, sometimes it kind of slips into more of memoirs, but she talks about how they met. And I found this great for Nora's story later on, but he tried out a routine, quote, On being introduced to me, he made the remark that he had met me before. I told him I thought not. Afterwards, he remembered that it was in a dream he had seen me, and he thought from then that I was to be his wife. Pretty slick. Six months later, they're married in the temple, uh, in the Logan Temple, the first day it's open. So, getting to work here. After their marriage, they go back to Hiram to set up shop. Two weeks later, her uncle gives Abby a very interesting blessing. Part of it said that, quote, The three Nephites should dine at our table, and angels should be in our house, close quote. The key part, though, Uncle Charles told her, quote, He told me to be comforted, for the Lord was pleased with me and my husband. Said the evil one was trying to have power over me but that I must not allow him to come near me. Said he made me think sometimes that our marriage was too hasty, etc. But he said it was at the right time, and the Lord had caused it to be brought about. Said that he had shown me to my husband in a vision. There we go. We got confirmation of Matthias's dream there. So after their marriage, Abby would kind of bounce around from her house. Sometimes she would stay with her relatives, sometimes hers, sometimes Matthias's. Then, in 1888, she gives birth to a daughter and nearly dies. So she's with relatives and even Dr. Ellis Ship, a very important name for fundamentalist history. And during the worst of it, she gets blessings every single day, sometimes more than once a day. Her visitors were very prominent people. Zina Young came one time to Washington Oiner. Leaders like Orson F. Whitney, Moses Thatcher, B.H. Roberts come to the house to bless her. At one point, their entire ward held a kneeling prayer during fast meeting. It finally gets better, but then has to face an even more difficult challenge, polygamy. One of, um, let's see, it was Matthias's missionary companion. His sister, Luella Parkinson, would come and kind of hang out at the house. And during this time, Abby and Matthias went to the Logan Temple and had two dead women sealed to Matthias. So he starts polygamy, but posthumous polygamy, which is very interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that they were doing that. I mean, you hear like of Wilford Woodruff having that happen, but he's already got living plural wives that have been sealed to him. So basically what we're learning is Matthias Cowley was like the hipster modern day LDS guy. Like he was doing the ceilings in the temple to dead women. Is that not a funny joke? You're looking at me. I think it started the practice with Brigham Young, this idea that you could marry people for time and eternity and it was about property. But I do think it is it was rare at the time when he when he did it. Yeah, especially because he has he doesn't have living plural wives yet, which is a very odd way to go about it. Two weeks after they do those ceilings, a living wife then becomes part of the conversation. Luella comes back to the house and has a talk with Abby. 
And I was I was very proud of myself for this because she tried to erase this conversation from her journal, but she didn't do a very good job, so I could still read it. It said, quote, Sister Luella Parkinson came and spent the afternoon with me. We had a personal conversation. I was feeling so poorly in health that I was not prepared for the subject, close quote. Over the next few months, Abby finally resigned herself to the inevitable, even had dinner with Luella's mom one time. But what's interesting is her journal is totally silent on the plural marriage. If we didn't have the date otherwise, we wouldn't even know it had happened. So September 1889, they, uh, Matthias and Luella go down to the endowment house, and it's actually one of the last plural marriages that was performed there, just about a month before they took it down. So Abby was silent, but Matthias was not. Later on, he said, quote, To Abby, plural marriage was a great trial, but she gave her consent and under very trying circumstances maintained her integrity to that divine law. Before I married her, I told her I intended to marry again in obedience to that principle. She answered, I wouldn't like to marry a man who would not obey it, close quote. And this is an interesting statement because you hear this all the time from plural wives. They can accept in their head that it's right, but uh, the reality of it is really, really difficult. So she resigned herself to it. So Abby would live with Matthias in Preston, and then Luella, the plural wife, taught school in Wyoming. And then later, she moves back to, to Coville, which put her closer to Matthias, but still separate houses. And she had a hard time getting pregnant for the first time. She has several priesthood blessings, and then finally they have a baby, Laura, who will be part of our story later on. So then after this, Matthias is called on another mission, this one very short, and he goes to open the Northwestern State's mission. And then the year after that, at the October 1897 General Conference, he's called as an apostle and joins his childhood friend John W. Taylor, who had been an apostle for almost 15 years by that point. Not even six months after being called as an apostle, he starts performing plural marriages. And this is really fun because we have a record of them. Uh, a friend of mine was working on a biography, interestingly enough, of Gerald and Sandra Tanner. And part of this was he was researching a marriage of one of Sandra's ancestors that was thought to have been performed by Matthias Cowley. And he knew that Cowley had kept a record of it, and so he went to the church history library and said, can I see it? This is amazing. Not only did they let him see it, but they digitized it so we can all go see it. It's a fascinating document. In his hand, Cowley recorded more than 50 plural marriages that he performed through 1903. And there's a lot more that he did than just these, but some of the marriages in there are fascinating. So he, he performs marriages for fellow apostles, um, including John W. Taylor, big surprise, stake presidents, mission presidents, our guy, Joseph Musser, and even one for Luella's half-brother, George Parkinson. And that one is really interesting because George marries a woman named Fanny Woolley, who is both the half-sister of John W. Woolley, but she had been courted by Heber J. Grant. And Grant really, really, really wanted to marry her. He liked her, but part of it, too, is he wanted a son. And he had his, his wives had given birth to a couple sons, but they had both died in childhood. And he was just zealous about having a son that would carry on his name. And then, during all of this performing plural marriages, Matthias actually marries a plural wife himself. And this was kind of a fun, fun thing I found. The specific date for it, I don't think, was known anywhere. And I actually found it in a privately published family history. So Cowley, who had previously married... Abby Hyde first, then Luella Parkinson, now Harriet Benyon, third wife, in 1899 in the Logan Temple. And this was an interesting marriage because it was almost certainly 
done by the temple president, Mariner Merrill, who was also an apostle with Cowley. Merrill was an interesting figure because he was almost as active as Cowley himself in performing plural marriages, but was trying to hide. And later during the Reed Smoot hearings, they want him to come back to Washington and testify with Cowley, and neither one of them will do it because they know way too many secrets. So, And this wife, Harriet Benning, was very interesting because she was a widow, so she had been single for almost a decade before she married Cowley. And sadly, we know almost nothing about this marriage. Cowley himself didn't really write about it. She didn't write about it. One of the weirder parts of it, and, and you get these weird connections from plural marriages, but Matthias's daughter, Sarah, married Benjamin, who was Harriet's son. So you have a plural couple and then their kids get married. So you have all these these odd connections. But And so then, a couple of years after that, we get the next chapter in the story, which is when Callie meets Nora. Thank you for that, because that, that sums up, you sort of allude to some of the things that we're going to talk about, you know, in the documents that Chad has. But also, I appreciate you bringing the other women into focus. So when we talk about them, because they do come up a little bit, then people can understand um, who they are. And I would... I think we're going to try to put this document online. Chad, is that right? Yeah, or- absolutely. Yeah, uh, it will be available online. I can send it to you to put up on your website if you'd like, but I also have a website called voiceofourancestors.com. Yeah, we I- can we can totally link to your stuff. So let's do that. Yeah, sounds good. I plan on posting on there, but I haven't done it yet. Okay, so yeah. And let me tell you what I found really remarkable about this document in some ways. And in some ways, it's not that remarkable, but because it's just like a, it's a very true to life family history that we all sort of inherit. One of the things that I grew up thinking was that polygamy, the the women that were married to Brigham Young were happy. You know, we always, you know, everyone was happy. And of course, there were jealousies and fights, but it was a good thing. And then I started reading pioneer accounts of it. And the women are really honest, surprisingly honest. It hasn't been until the 60s or 70s that there has been this really concerted effort to scrub the history of polygamy. And part of that, you know, we have people compiling only the feel-good pioneer stories. And we have the whole Kate Carter from the DUP where she takes and she's cutting out pages she doesn't like or things she doesn't like. And I really think that that did so much damage to our community as a whole. It sort of ingrained and put our ancestors on a pedestal of perfection that was impossible to meet. And so a lot of us grew up with this really shiny history, and we thought that people could be that perfect, but something was wrong with us. And I don't think pioneers were, I mean, there there were some things that uh, they left out and things like that, but they told the dirty truth of polygamy. If it was hard, they said it was hard. And so because this account is later on written, what year was it written? Uh Uh, 1958. 1958. I thought that was so interesting because I do think as the decade wore on, um, it became more, I don't know, socially, culturally appropriate to sort of scrub your uh, honest feelings and you keep journals about the best stuff, right? Mm -hmm. So she, I just think it's really remarkable that she, what in this document, we hear her talk about the good stuff and we hear her talk about the bad stuff, which you talked about at the beginning of the podcast. She didn't like her husband. She didn't like polygamy. She had a hard time with it. And she was quite honest about it. So I'm really excited that you brought that in because I think that that's an important history. You know, there are people, I think, in the fundamentalist community that wish that it were a prettier picture, you know, and that she 
was more positive about polygamy and there's LDS people that wish she didn't do it at all. So everybody's sort of on different sides of it. And I think we just need to allow her story to unfold as it is. Yeah, actually, I'm I, the, the reason that I wanted to share this story uh, more than anything was because as I listened to your podcast, you talk about how like these women have voices and their voices need to be heard. And so actually some of the other family members, uh, the, the descendants of Mary Lenora Taylor, one of her daughters, not my, not my grandmother that I, my great grandmother that I, that I knew when I was a, a little child, but, um, but one of her sisters actually scrubbed this story down. So most of the family has this story in a totally watered down whitewashed version and uh, come to find out this story is like how it was originally typed out uh, by her for her son, Claire. And it's been, it's, and this one has not been, you know, whitewashed like the church has done with much of its history come to find out. And so I, I think it's really important for her story to be told, you know, as it is with, with the, the positive and the negative things to really understand what was going on and to be able to hear her voice. Yeah. So, so bring us into it, kind of tell us what you want to share about the document. And then we are going to try to get this document narrated so you can hear it in her voice as she as she meant it. But until we do that, why don't you tell us what what the document says? If you could read some excerpts, that would be great. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, for sure. And I'll try to I'll try to keep this kind of condensed. But you know, this is written for her son Claire, and she starts off with a little bit about her ancestry, and she talks about her paternal grandfather, who was Norman Taylor, born September fifth, eighteen twenty eight, in Grafton, Ohio. And her grandmother, uh, Grandmother Taylor, was Lydia Forbush, born January 5th, 1830 in Vermont. And she talks about um, how her father uh, was Ernest Leander Taylor, born in 1851 in San Bernardino, California. And then her mother was Mary Arneson Taylor, born in 1860 in Norway. Um, She talks about how her grandfather, Taylor, was one of the first pioneers to Utah He was a young man of 19 and was unmarried, and he drove the first wagon behind Brigham Young, arriving in in Utah in Salt Lake. And um, basically, I think what's interesting about this is um, a lot of of folks are aware of uh, the the Juarez colony, and her father and uh, and her mothers, uh, two mothers, were, and and her her sisters and uh, brothers, they they were part of the first colony to come into Juarez. So they, she talks about how they lived in tents, but that didn't live, that didn't last long. They built log homes. And then her father was the first one to have a brick home. And, you know, her father was very successful uh, temporarily there in Juarez. He, he had the uh, a tanning and manufacturing company. They made saddles, leather products, boots. He owned a merchant store and a meat market and just doing really well. She, she talks about how great her life was you know, I guess financially, they, they were well off there. They had frilly white dresses. And, you know, they, they definitely didn't feel like they were wanting for anything as they were there. But right from an early age, she, she talks about polygamy and how she, she really did not, you know, have an interest in it. She says, quote, when I was about 10 years old, I began to feel bitter about polygamy. There was always tattling from one other side of the family, which made constant trouble for my brother Delbert. She 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 talks about how she talked to her half sister Maud, and that she told her that when she grew up, she never wanted to marry into polygamy, and that she would be an old maid first. And it's funny because uh, her father kind of caught wind of this that she that she said this, and 
and gave her a, a, a curtain lecture, she calls it. And she said, uh, Pa said that I had said a very wicked thing. And every time I said my prayers, I was to ask Heavenly Father to forgive me for making such a wicked remark. And her mother took her side a little, a little softer on it and uh, basically, you know, told her that she, she kind of understood where she was coming from, but to be careful and to not cause trouble with the other side of the family. So there was a lot of, a lot of uh, pull in both different directions, I guess, with this family situation down there. Let me, can, um, I, can I say something about that? So I think it's so interesting that, that her father would hear that and be upset. It's almost like it's an indictment on his, the way that he's living it, right? And that is, what I love about these accounts is I feel like they're still consistent today. When you talk to modern fundamentalists, you will have people, especially in the FLDS, who were, you know, who knew that it was coming for them, that they didn't have a choice, right? It was just going to come for any eligible girl in the community. And so some girls, I mean, it wasn't a choice to not be a plural wife, but you'll talk to people that say, based on my experience, I knew it, that wasn't for me. I never wanted that. And then you'll have girls that say, I loved it and I was so excited to live it. I couldn't wait to do it. And I just, I think it's so interesting that also that this account is so consistent to the experiences of so many people today. Another thing that's interesting is because she has older siblings, both from her mother and the other mother, she kind of watches it play out and is. A, a witness to it. And so that's the thing I love about her stories. You get all these details about what it was like to actually live it. You know, this is this is the day-to-day, and she sees the friction. She sees the, the inner family dynamics of it. And so she kind of has to reckon with it growing up, knowing this is coming, is do I really want this? Yeah, that's a perfect segue to the next little section that I wanted to share. So she says, my sister Maude was married to Brother Bentley 30 years her senior. I was tickled to death about it, even though I knew she was very unhappy. Now I could have my dates uh, and go to parties and not get heck when I got home because Maude had not been invited. Aunt Hannah persuaded Maude into this marriage. She and Aunt H was so proud and happy about it because Brother Bentley was the state president and also the president of the Academy Board of Education. He had two very big fine homes for his two other wives, and Maude could have the same. Uh, So it's just interesting because that kind of ties right into what you were saying, Brian, about watching her siblings around her participate. And I feel like that's some foreshadowing because a woman that writes about that and acts that way, uh, she doesn't have what you would call the temperament for a successful plural marriage. So Another interesting thing there, you mentioned in, in connection with Bentley, how he has these two really nice houses. And I, I, I don't, I'd never really thought about it before, but the episode with Barbara Brown, when she comes on and talks about how in the colonies, they are creating this little Victorian outpost of Utah in the middle of the desert. And so they're just transplanting Utah culture, Utah architecture, Utah trees into the middle of a totally different culture and trying to make it work out in the desert, in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. So she goes on and she talks about how, you know, basically the family was all persuading her to to go along with this marriage as far as, you know, her sister Maude. And um, she talks about how, you know, she says, I had known all the time what was going on. Every Wednesday night, Maude was to be at home and spend the evening with Brother Bentley. He would bring her little gifts brought in from El Paso, talk all evening, explaining the beauty of polygamy and the great reward in store for those who lived it. Sometimes Maude ran away and hid, and they couldn't find her the whole evening. But in the end, she was persuaded, and they were married long before I knew it. 
Brother Bentley was kind and good, and Maud finally did love him very much as a father. So that's interesting, as a father. Yeah, I mean, so in some plural marriages, especially in the in that time period, the husband would his wife's would call him father. That's um, that's not an uncommon thing. And there's there's like I've heard debates about this in fundamentalist communities because at first my LDS brain was like, that's gross. <laughs> like why 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 would you have dad issues like that? But it's all tied to patriarchal priesthood in the Bible, and I I still don't understand it. If you're out there doing it and you're calling your spouse father, can can we not? It's it's 2019. Well, and in this particular case, he's 30 years older. Like, you can believe polygamy is right, you can work toward it, but he's still 30 years older. And that just is going to create a very interesting dynamic in the relationship that's going to be very difficult to make happen. And I just want to say, when I first started reading, this story stuck out to me right away because, you know, she has this sort of interesting relationship with her sister where she like is so glad to to have her do this and get out of the house or whatever but she sees her suffering and we kind of make it like she almost is colloquial about it like and then she loved him and it was all was well but I just feel like all of those moments where she's running from the house and can't be found like that's so much heartache there well, that and that story translates right over to to uh, Nora's story as she goes on. The next sentence she says about this account of Maud, her sister, and Brother Bentley is, Apostle Cowley married them, but I didn't know this until many years later. All such things were top secret, as we would now say. So, you know, you'll probably find this marriage on that document that you mentioned earlier. Um, she goes on and says, the more I saw of polygamy, the more determined I was that no man would ever get me. Some of their practices were obnoxious. They believed it their sacred duty to have large families and children. And she goes on more about that. But, you know, you can just see as she goes on in the story that she professes more and more that she, you know, despises the idea of it and wasn't interested in it. But yet, as we'll see, it it happens in her own life. So quick question um, about um, Nora later on. So she's a faithful LDS church member her whole life, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll get to that later. But basically, she 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 does get an official divorce, like sanctioned by the church. And so she does end up divorcing from Matthias Cowley. And then she marries my great great or my great. Yeah, my great great grandfather, who is Walter Bergner, um, who is the school teacher that came into Tawara's to teach afterwards. But um, but I mean, she has no axe to grind. I mean, she's not, you know, she doesn't leave the church. So it's not like she's so she's just telling you a, a candid, intimate look at what it was like to right. live in the colonies. A- absolutely. She's not she's not she has no axe to grind. She's not bashing anything. In fact, she she lived as a faithful member her whole life. I have photos of her at her home here in Liberty Park in Salt Lake City with several of her children and, and, you know, Walter Bergner, her new husband, and she was a faithful member of the church her whole life to her death. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's important for people to understand that because a lot of people, there's a lot of information about polygamy, anti-polygamy stuff that come from exposés and ex-Mormons and things like that. And it's sort of known for that, but she's an example of someone who had problems, but stays in. So, um, Tell us what else you found from the document that was really important. Yeah. Okay. So she goes on. She talks about how her um, her brother, her half-brother Lonzo, he serves a mission in Mexico City. And when he has been in Mexico City for about a year and a half, she convinces the mission president, I guess, to allow her to be able to go and visit him in Mexico City. 
And uh, while she's there in Mexico City, she's working basically in the mission home. She's um, she's really interested in writing. She took several classes uh, in school. And then she talks about how uh, Alonzo rented a typewriter for me, she says. I took the letters in at night and uh, in night and day learning to write. So she was she was basically writing um, in the mission office for the mission president. And she gets very good at the typewriter. And because of that, uh, when she comes back to Juarez, to Colonial Juarez, you have all these uh, apostles and, you know, high leaders of the church that are coming down to Colonial Juarez in order to, I guess, kind of let things cool down with polygamy in the States. And when when they find out that she's very good on the typewriter, they uh, they ask her to to type out their dissertations and their their writings. So she really spends a lot of time with a lot of these men. She goes on and she kind of lists who's there. She says the men were either in trouble for having too many wives or performing marriages and polygamy. The men who were living in the home of President Anthony W. Ivins were apostles John Taylor, M.F. Cowley, that's Matthias, Owen Woodruff, and J.M. Tanner, a governor, superintendent of the church schools. And that name is actually important to remember because that a really horrible thing in my, my eyes comes, comes back to play in this story a little further down, down the line here. Um, she goes on and says, apostle Taylor had six wives, brother Cowley, three brother Woodruff, three brother Tanner, six. I began at once to get well acquainted with them as Florence Ivins was my chum and constant companion. We took turns sleeping in each other's homes, etc. When the brethren found out that I could take dictation and use a typewriter, I really had a job. I spent almost every evening writing their letters or discourses, taking dictation for blessings they were given, giving to members, etc. At the dances and entertainment at the academy, they danced with me a couple of times each, and I was very proud. I had to lead the leading role in the high school play when we were preparing for commencement. I was the busiest gal in town, and I loved it all, except those persistent married men. Then she goes on and says, something that's a little shocking. I guess it was for me when I first read it. She said, each night I did the secretary work at the Ivan's home. The brethren took turns taking me home in President Ivan Surrey, a fancy buggy with a beautiful horse. I hated those rides because not one of them would keep his hands off me. Yeah, uh, shocking is is a fair word there. And that's one of the, the elements of Nora's story that I found so fascinating is it, it you, you really do get a good picture of the constant search for new wives. And that's the thing is, is as polygamists, these guys were always looking, you know? And so when they go on conference visits, state conference visits, or when they're going down to the colonies, if they see some woman that that is beautiful, that's interesting, that has secretarial talents, you know, they're always looking. And these and the the wives paint this picture of always being scared that a new wife is going to come into the household. And so anytime that they see their husband talking to another woman, it really, uh, it, it just terrifies them because they, they know at any given moment, a new wife might be joining them. And especially if they were the last one to have married the husband, then their status as the quote-unquote new wife is challenged. And so there's all these these dynamics that are constantly in play. And 
you know, you can you can imagine in the the wife's shoes, this is a terrible position to be in because you're always scared, always looking around and wondering what's happening next. Yeah, absolutely. And um, one thing that I noticed in her story, she talks about like two different boyfriends that she, you know, that she loved there in Colonial Juarez, but she had this pressure from her half brother, from her family to marry somebody of a higher elevation or a higher power within the church because all these apostles and and others um, with more prominent positions were showing interest in her and they just couldn't understand why she would you know be interested in this normal you know regular Mormon boy so kind of fast forwarding in the story she then talks about how Apostle Taylor persuaded her father to purchase some land in Canada and so they bought like a hundred acres I think it was of land and they shipped a bunch of their animals up there and she thought that this would be a great opportunity to escape from you know the pressure that she started to feel in Colonial Juarez. She says, they bought 1,000 acres of land, which in those days was considered a large project. By late October, they had 500 acres planted in fall wheat. One of the reasons I was so happy to go to Canada was to get away from the obnoxious married men in Colonial Juarez. I dislike polyg- polygamy more than ever. And then she talks about how she had a great she had a a great surprise in store. It was the same old story. We had just been there a few weeks when one day Ray Knight, son of Jesse Knight of Provo, Utah, and brother Louis M. Cannon called to see us and have a pie and a cup and a glass of cold milk. At first, I didn't suspect a thing, but they called again and soon brother Knight came alone and asked me to go for a buggy ride. I knew the score and I was already sick to my stomach. He was president of the Alberta Stake and a millionaire and had the finest home in Raymond. Guy was disgusted with me when I told him that I couldn't stand the man. Next, here came Brother Cannon, and it was the same thing. They knew I had been raised in polygamy and would probably make a wonderful second wife. So basically, right when she gets up there, there are already, you know, there's several several passes at her already um, for polygamy. All right, so so the next thing, so I, I numbered a few things. The next thing I was going to talk about, now she's leaving Canada. She went to Canada for the first time. She's going back to Juarez. Okay. When okay. she goes back to Juarez, she was dismayed to find out that those Salt Lake brethren were there again, and my mother confided to me that several of my girlfriends had married in polygamy, and if I ever wanted to keep out of trouble, I better give them a cold shoulder right away. So her, her mom was kind of like on her side, like, hey, if you don't want yeah. in on this, like make sure you're very clear right away. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, so after being in Canada that first time, she is now heading back to Colonial Juarez again. She says, when I got to Juarez, I was dismayed to find that those Salt Lake brethren were there again. Mother confided me that several of my girlfriends had married into polygamy, and if I ever wanted to keep out of trouble, I better give them the cold shoulder right to begin with. I worked at the TNM, that's her father's tanning and manufacturing company, and also was secretary for Guy C. Wilson at the academy. Brother Callie began to be a problem. He would come over to our house every afternoon about the time I got home. He often had a headache, and Mother would make him a cup of barley coffee, which was not barley at all. I, <laughs> I would disappear and stay till dark. I just got to say, she's so funny. This is also the great thing about this is she really is delightful. Yeah, she she tells her story like like we said with with the 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 humor, with the good and the bad all together. So that's what makes it so real. I think. She says in March we went back to Canada. So right now this is going to be uh, this is going to be post manifesto. I believe this is nineteen oh right around nineteen oh four. Post second manifesto even. So it, post, this is serious yeah, yeah, business. Manifesto. What she's about to tell us exactly. So she says 
Um, before I left, I managed for several days to keep away from Brother Cowley. It looked like it was going really well. I was really going to get away without seeing him. When to my dismay, just when we were ready to leave the Casa for, Gra- for Casa Grande to take the train here, he came with a horse and buggy to drive me down. Guy and Harvey were going in another buggy. Pa was at the ranch. He told me goodbye earlier that morning. Mother came, or mother called me into the bedroom and gave me advice about making up my own mind and not letting anyone talk me into believing his lying about inspiration when concerned about marrying into polygamy. He told mom that Brother Callie had a talk with her and Pa and had their consent into asking me to marry him. So I found that interesting. Apparently, Brother Callie did speak with her parents and get their consent uh, to to marry to marry her to ask her to marry her. And quick, quick time out here, do you, Lindsay. Do you want to talk about? I, I found this really interesting. The relationship of her mom, like you know, teaching her the ropes and being like, and and kind of telling her you can push back. Yeah. Okay. Something that that I think is really interesting is. And that I've been curious about is how women mothers prepared their daughters and if there was any preparation in polygamy. And I've learned that it's different in different groups and different cultures and in different families. But she talks about this here. She talks about her mother sort of training her or showing her the ropes, if you will. Yeah. And it's so interesting that we get a good picture here of how some women really, you know, again, they might believe in the principle, but at the same time, they're telling she's telling her daughter here, it's okay for you to make up your. In fact, you should make up your own mind and be independent. And so we get a more nuanced picture that it's not just a bunch of you know, it's not hive mind all the time. And there's these individuals in the system who are saying, I don't like this part of it, and and are pushing back a little bit. Well, and a little cliffhanger here too. When we actually go to the to the story of how she was talked into eventually marrying Matthias Cowley, it's really heartbreaking because she really struggles with it and doesn't want to do it. But she's like talked into it, manipulated into it, and then she receives this letter from her parents that basically just give her like full, you know, flat out black and white. You don't have to do this, and it's too late. It's already done. But we'll get we'll get to that in the story a little later. But yeah, you nailed it with that. She goes on and she talks about how Matthias Cowley continues, you know, in this buggy ride, talking her into all this. And he says, you know, uh, it says all the way to Casas, he talked about eternity in the celestial kingdom and what a drop in the bucket this life is and how glorious the next providing you were, uh, the next providing you were numbered among the chosen few who had observed the sacred law of celestial marriage. Just a lot of pressure, which of course meant polygamy. And I, I believed him. He told me about his wives, about all three and how they were wonderful women, and he loved them all, but not as much as he loved me. Um, I felt very proud and honored, but I would never marry any man, is what I told him. I could hardly believe, he could hardly believe his ears, considering all the training I had my whole life, and the wonderful family I belonged to. Okay, I I just need to say something. Anyone that went to an LDS-dominated college, any woman, knows this feeling. We've all been in a room with a dude older than us usually, just got back from a mission, and he wants to tell us why an angel has told him that we're supposed to be married. It's not the sexiest way to come on to a girl. That's all I'm saying. It's it's uncomfortable. Yeah, definitely. And then he, he goes on and he, or, or I'm sorry, she goes on and says, he told me goodbye in the buggy. And I remember now after almost 50 years, how repulsive his scratchy beard was on my face and neck. 
it still makes me ill to think about it. Anyway, I promised to think very seriously about it and to pray about it night and morning. Yeah, it's it's this to me was the the one of the high points of her story is this firsthand, very candid account of how an apostle proposed plural marriage to a wife and how sorry, Lindsay, he may have been a sexy beast, but uh Nora wasn't having it. And 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 again, he's an apostle and there's all this this prestige attached to it, and uh his personal charm was not getting it done with her. Okay, so as if that wasn't, uh, you know, enough pressure and enough, uh, you know, intensity, I guess, in this same frame of mind. Now she goes on to uh, when she goes back to Canada again. This this section of her story is a lot of back and forth between Colonial Juarez and Canada to the ranch up there. But she goes on. Um, she says the trip to Canada was another wonderful experience. I love to travel and could never have enough of it. When I when we arrived in Salt Lake, Guy, so thankful for my welfare. Guy is uh, is her half brother. Um, so she says, when when we arrived in Salt Lake, Guy, so thankful for my welfare, principally because he had a girlfriend in Canada who he hoped to marry as a third wife. And we'll learn more about that in a little in a little bit too, because we can also read from Nora's sister's uh, account, Flora's account, where she talks more about about that and deeply interested in my good friends among top authorities of the church contacted Marion Tanner who we heard about earlier one of the guys that was down there in Colonial Juarez he he had guy bring me up to the church offices on South Temple at eight o'clock that evening to have a quote little chat with him I really didn't mind too much when guy left me alone with brother Tanner as he was very handsome attractive and magnetic person I was there until one o'clock. And I learned that night a great deal about men that I never learned from any of my boyfriends in Colonial Juarez. I also lost my respect for the first authorities of the church, whether they be apostles, prophets, or whatever. That quote right there floored me. She obviously doesn't go into a lot of details, but we know that she was there alone with Marion Tanner in the church office building from 8 p.m. to one in the morning, and then she says that she lost all of her respect for the first authorities of the church, whether they be apostles, prophets, or whatever. And her early reports about the buggy rides where they were all handsy, it's pretty easy to read between the lines what's going on here. And again, you know, these are the kinds of details about courting in the, the plural world that you rarely get. And that's why I, her story is so fascinating, because you, you see from her perspective the... Uh, the pressure and the manipulation and the unsavory side of it. Yeah, but I mean, you say we we talk about this isn't something we get in the LDS community, but the exposés are full of these stories and none of us take them seriously because they're from, you know, bitter apostates or ex-Mormons and written in sort of 19th century style. But they match up with what faithful women have said. And, and that's the frustrating thing is that we don't believe the women who have shared these stories because we think that they're angry. And of course they're angry. If their stories are true, then of course they're angry. Yeah, but just because they're angry doesn't mean that they all have stepped away. I mean, there's a lot of pressure, you know, I, back then you step away from the church and what do you have left? I mean, it's everything. It's the food on your table. It's the, it's the house over your head. It's everything. So, I mean, who's to say that maybe she didn't have those feelings, but wouldn't, you know, but in any event, I think it, it is uh, interesting to point out that 
you know, she, she did stay faithful through her whole life uh, as a member of the church, regardless of all the stuff that, that happened to her. I made notes on this, on this document uh, to prepare for this. And, and the next part, I have a note that says the setup. And this is basically where she's being set up by her half brother. We find out more about that from, as I mentioned before, from Flora's account, exactly what was happening kind of behind the curtain. But I think this part right here, I pretty much just need to read word for word so that you can really get a picture of what was happening here. This is when she went back to Canada again the second time. She finally, after that account, after that uh, that event that happened in Salt Lake City with Marion Tanner in the church office building, she continued on her journey up to Canada. And then when she gets there, this is what she says. Okay, so she's she's talking about how she went to some of the ward dances, and right away she found a new boo. Uh, he was a cousin to Charles Johnson, my first steady boo in Colonial Juarez. His name was Seth. He was very handsome, and we had a wonderful time for a few weeks. But Guy didn't like the idea. Couldn't see how I could fall for a common boy with no future. After my wonderful opportunities with apostles and stake presidents, he did everything he could to make it difficult for us to have dates since I lived on the ranch and Seth lived in town. Guy was very determined and did a lot of interfering in my life. And it makes you wonder why he was so concerned about that. But we, we learn more about that later. I think it's so interesting here. We get a great picture of the gender politics. You've got dudes taking care of dudes. So Guy and and John W. Taylor will run interference for Cowley in this story. And so they're taking care of, of their dudes. And then on the other side, the women are trying to take care of the women. And, the you know, mom's talking to her and saying, I don't know about this. And here's some advice. And this is how you stay out of these kinds of situations. And so we we, we get a better picture of how the, the men are helping the men out and the women are trying to look out for the women. And it's a, a fascinating picture of it. Okay, so now as she arrives to Canada... Short time after we arrived in Canada, we had an interesting experience. About two o'clock in the morning, Delbert rushed into my room, got me out of bed, quick to see something really wonderful. We ran outside, and there in the far north was the most spectacular sight I had ever seen, a brilliant display of the northern lights. What a thrilling sight that I shall never forget. So she just kind of introduces that as she first comes into Canada, but then she goes on to something a little darker. One day, Guy was going to town, and he wouldn't let anyone go with anyone but me go with him, not even Linda. I couldn't imagine why, but I found out on my way back. After we left town a few miles, by the side of the road ahead of us was Elder Cowley, waiting for us in another buggy. I was so amazed and so mad I almost died. After that, it happened every time we went to town, and so the most trying summer of my life passed. My good times at war dances came to an end. Brother Callie couldn't dance. He was always there to keep an eye on me and to see me in the arms of young hoodlums, as he called them, made him so ill he could hardly fill his speaking engagements at state conferences. Guy reminded me that Brother Callie was the most popular speaker in church, and he didn't see how my conscience would allow me to make him so unhappy. I thought how kind and good Brother Callie was to me, and I felt that I was about the meanest girl in the world. I would make up my mind that next time I saw him, I would be real sweet and kind and affectionate. Then when I was with him, in the, it was the same story. I would move as far away from him as I could in the buggy seat. I hate to tell the story of my marriage. I never told anyone other than my parents and my brother Alonzo except Pat, not the whole story. 
After battling for several months with Guy and Brother Cowley, he finally made me a proposition. Apostle John W. Taylor was coming to Raymond the next Sunday for state conference. Brother Cowley would tell him honestly the whole situation. Then I was to have a talk with John W. Taylor, and whatever he advised us to do, Brother Cowley promised to do, if I would make the same promise. What could I do? I finally promised. I also promised, as I promised every time I saw him, that I would never write off one word of any of this to my parents or anyone in Mexico. If I did, it might result in having Brother Cowley discharged from the Quorum of the Twelve Apostles. I wouldn't dare do such a thing. So on Monday, after the conference, I went to Brother Taylor's home. He had two wives living in Raymond at the time. He was so kind and fatherly, fatherly toward, toward me. He took me in a bedroom and gave me the familiar talk about the beauties of, the celestial, mar- of celestial marriage, which in its highest form is polygamy. Then he told me about a wonderful dream he had about me. It really wasn't a dream either, he said, as he was wide awake. He was walking on the lonely road when he saw in the distance coming towards him a woman with a long cloak around her. When she came near, he saw that it was Sister Cowley, Matthew's mother. She was dead. She told him she had come on a sacred mission. She had something which which he was to deliver to her. She was to deliver to her son Matthias. She lifted her robe, and there you stood, Sister Nora, with a smile on your sweet face. I cried and told him again how I didn't love Brother Cowley, and he said that this silly thing that young people call love was poppycock, and he promised me that as soon as I married Brother Cowley, the Lord would fill my heart with so so full of love of him that I could barely be away from him. So that so, did it. Okay, I got I got to say though, just interrupt because like we're reading and she's so charming, but this is such. A dark thing to listen to because, and honestly, and I don't mean this to be offensive to either your family history or people that really respect this man, but in any other context, this would be so predatory. You can't tell your parents, you can't tell anyone. And he's, you know, kind of stalking her. And based on a dream or revelation or not, I mean, she clearly, for you see her, she says something really interesting in this where she talks about, she knows that this isn't a story that you talk about publicly because she says, I've never told anyone except for a few people. She's acknowledging the secrecy still lingers for her. And I imagine the fear that she felt because what was the age difference at the time again? Okay, so she's what, 27 years younger? You just did my thinking for me, Brian. That's a huge age, age difference. And what what age would she have been at this time? 19? Okay, so she's a really young girl. I know what it's like to feel that kind of pressure. I felt it. I felt it from people. Um, You know, I had a friend that I grew up with and that she would tell me that men in our ward, when she would, they would drive her home for babysitting, would try to, you know, put their hand on her leg. And I didn't believe her. I thought she was just lying. And I understand how this is like when you're a young girl and everything around you is pressuring you. And I'm sorry, but that's kind of what this this story sounds like. Not all of plural marriages were like this, but he was so deeply aggressive. And another thing I think we have to keep in mind is the religious persuasion that's brought to bear, right? John W. Taylor is an apostle. Matthias Cowley is an apostle. Are you really going to say that an apostle doesn't know what's best for you? And Lindsay, you've talked about in other episodes on this, that when you take the punishments away, that's all That's all fine. But when you're at attaching religious punishment and, and damnation to this, 
that is an element of manipulation. It, it just is. And that is definitely a key part of Nora's story here. Yeah, actually. So um, on this, since we're at this part right here, before we go on to the actual, you know, event that, you know, right to the, to the cusp of where she finally re- relents and, and agrees to the marriage, I, I just opened up this other account, which is of Flora's journal. So Nora's sister, Flora, also has her own, you know, typed out history. And I flip to the page here. This will all be available probably on the same website that will link so you, so people can read this. But I think that it's important to see it from another perspective as well. This is her sister. This is her own, you know, typed out history. And she says, I, I, I found, re- I got right to the spot that it links up with this. Nora had a very sad and pathetic experience while in Canada. Although Guy had two wives in Mexico, Minnie and Gertrude, he fell in love with a young girl, Lily Hicks, and wanted to marry her. The church had ceased to sanction plural marriages, yet many men took plural wives. Guy consulted Apostle Matthias F. Cowley about it, and he said he could arrange to have the ceremony take place. Brother Cowley became very enamored of Nora, who was young, beautiful, and very popular. He started a very persistent pursuit after her, but Nora would have none of it. When he came out to the ranch to see her, she would hide in the tall wheat and leave until one of the boys or I would tell her that Brother Callie had left. Guy, who had been very nice and thoughtful of her, became very angry because she wasn't flattered with an apostle's attention toward her and would go to town or would go to go to town to church and dances without her. And she was very unhappy about that. Delbert interceded and took her her to town one evening. Guy became so angry that he and Delbert had a big quarrel and Delbert left, which made Nora very unhappy. She should have gone she should have gone with him, but hated to leave Lydia alone to cook for all those men. Lydia had several small children. Finally, Brother Callie told Guy that unless Guy persuaded Nora to marry him, he would not arrange for Guy to marry Lily. So between Guy's persuading and almost threats and Brother Callie's persistence and no one to talk about it but George and Lydia, she finally, against her better judgment and wishes, married the old man who had children older than she. I'm so glad we're talking about this because this brings up my current feelings on polygamy. And when something is, the more secret and underground it is, the more that you can abuse people, right? I was just thinking as you were reading this again, and, you know, because it's been a while since I've read through her history. But as you were talking, I was just thinking how interesting it is where we hear stories of polygamy sort of shift and the coercion get more and more and more oppressive. It's just really oppressive. It's predatory. And I'm sorry, it's been a while since I've read this document. But you guys are refreshing my memory. And it's just, it's horrifying. It's unacceptable. We have, it's, it's like she grew up in the FLDS, right? We like to think, you know, a lot of fundamentalists that I talk to really are trying to move away from the coercion part, but it's so inherent in the system. And I, I guess I just, I was just struck by like how charming her narrative is and how she sort of paints this, this like upbeat picture of her life, like all family histories do, but there's a really really dark shadow side to this. I mean, to hide in a field from a grown man that keeps coming around, that's that's not cute. It's terrifying. And another thing that I think is important here is there's good historical precedent for this idea of you convince her to marry me and then you can get married to this woman. I mean, this is Nauvoo polygamy. This is Joseph like, Smith's idea of, of favors, right? You know, yeah. you, you get... 
this man, you get your daughter or your niece or whatever to marry me, and then I will marry you to this other woman as a plural wife. I mean, this is this is straight out of the Nauvoo playbook. Yeah, absolutely. I was just going to say that it's straight out of the Nauvoo playbook, and and I, you know, so you see this happening, and it's, you know, it seems like it's it's easy to link it. You know, I don't know a lot about the the fundamentalist uh, history, but as I've studied the, you know, the the history of, of, of the church that I grew up in, you know, I, I see that this is not like new ideas. I mean, they're taking these ideas that were introduced, you know, in, in secret to, to the top, you know, people that were around Joseph Smith and they're, and then into Brigham Young, obviously this happened a lot probably during Brigham Young's time as well. They're, they're following the principles that were taught. Like Matthias Cowley was, was a uh, disfellowship, right. And removed from the apostleship. But I feel like he was like almost the scapegoat, you know, to to kind of make a point. But it was like all these other men got away with it at the same time. It's like he he just happened to be the example because, you know, it was he was one of those that were doing it post Second Manifesto. But, you know, I think there's sufficient evidence to show that there were several of the top leaders that were aware of this still going on after the Second manifesto as well. Is that right, Lindsay? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. But something else I wanted to add to what you're saying is I think this is probably a really controversial thing to say for my LDS audience, the tradition that I come from, but I hold the LDS church responsible for some of the, I mean, not responsible, but complicit in what has happened in you know communities like Short Creek with Warren Jeffs, because the LDS church's reaction wasn't just about excommunicating or disfellowshipping or sort of hiding the history. Them moving away from this practice in the way that they did it allowed it to go even further underground, allowed it to go. I mean, we talk about it being Nauvoo. Nauvoo polygamy was so seedy because it was secretive. You could ruin people's reputation. There was a lot on the line, and that's how the FLDS experienced it, and that's why it was so so gross. And when the LDS Church moved away from it, they really created this system where Matthias Cowley could use his both his authority as apostle and the sort of secrecy of it to really be coercive and really you know abusive about it. And you know, I know that that's happened throughout the history of polygamy, but when it was more open in like frontier Utah, women had more of a choice. I mean, there were still, I mean, they couldn't own property and, and there's still a dynamic and an imbalance there. You know, a lot of the women were poor and had no other choice and, and things like that, but at least it was more out in the open. And I really do think that the LDS churches, you know, this shows how they are driving underground and allowing people to coerce a young girl into marriage like that. Mm-hmm. And, and this, this, this also, this narrative as well about the, you know, the dream I had, a, I had a dream, but I was awake and you were a gift. And I mean, this pressure that's being put on her, I mean, it's, it's, it's sick. And, and it's really is a carryover from a lot of the early history of the church from Nauvoo and from Joseph Smith. And I mean, okay, so we just did the poppycock, right? So my heart would be full, so much full of that I wouldn't be able to be away from him. So, af- okay, so here, I'm going to, so we're going to go back. So, um, I cried and told him again how it, I didn't love Brother Callie. And he said that this silly thing that young people call love is poppycock. And he promised me that as soon as I married Brother Callie, the Lord would fill my heart with so much love of him that I could barely be away from him. So that did it. And when I went outside, there was Guy and Lily and Brother Callie in a big white top waiting for me. And when he asked me what I had decided, I said I was ready to marry him. We drove away from town, 
we didn't go towards our ranch. And I asked him where we were going. And they told me to Cardston to be married. What I felt was too terrible to write. We arrived in Cardston about midnight. We drove to a small home on the edge of town. Brother Callie told us that Patriarch Layton lived here, that he was ill, but not too ill to marry us. I said that John W. Taylor was to do it. He explained to me that John W. Taylor had commissioned Patriarch Layton to do it. We sat in on the white top while Brother Cowley went in and made arrangements. The old man in his 80s was very ill indeed. Brother Cowley told his wife that he was going to give her husband a blessing and that she was not to come in the room. Then he came out for me and we went in by a side door, an outside door. The old man was white as a corpse and he looked like one. He lay with his eyes closed and his mouth wide open, a pitiful sight. Brother Cowley leaned close to him and told him that we were ready. He moved his lips and what he said, I don't know, as I couldn't hear a sound. That was my marriage. We went out and Guy and Lily went in. After Guy and Lily went to a hotel to stay, Brother Cowley took me to President Allen's home to stay. He said to President Allen, quote, this is my wife, Nora. We've been married many years, and she's not as young as she looks, close quote. While Guy and Lily were in Brother Layton's home being married, Brother Callie told me we would stay together at President Wood's home, but that he would not, quote, live, close quote, with me until he could take me to the temple at a future date. He did not keep his promise. I had only a vague idea of what this living together business meant. I don't believe any girl ever to womanhood ever grew to womanhood knowing as little as I knew about the facts of life. I found out and I was shocked to death. Ah, I mean, this is so hard for me to talk about without getting super angry because I just feel for her. And on some of this is an LDS girl not having hardly any sex education whatsoever at all, you know, and having to learn about it. I at least had, uh, I did one of those, what are those things they do in Utah before premarital exams. I did one of those premarital exams in Utah for for you non-Mormon listeners. Buckle up because this is going to be a wild thing to explain to you. So in Utah, we do this thing where you, before you get married, you go and have a premarital exam. And that's basically where the doctor taught me what was going to happen on my honeymoon. And like, yeah, it's kind of crazy. So, um, but also I really appreciated having that information because so many women I talked to, so many women in plural marriages and in Mormon monogamous marriages, this is an issue for them. And it's such a hard thing for women to learn, especially in the way that she learns it. Like there's so much more. So there's so much more to, to her story. There's, there's so much, there's so much like happiness in her life too, that she shares in here, right? She talks about winning a spelling bee and winning a horse and then winning a race on her horse. And like, just, there's a lot of good in her story too. And and there's not enough time to read the whole thing through, but we are going to read the whole thing through. Um, the, one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to do this podcast as well is because when my wife and I first read the story and we saw what it was, we went on family history. My wife's actually been into like the family tree stuff and the DNA and all that. And so we went in and we found her and we went to the memories section on uh, Family Search, and we saw this story that's essentially the last page of this entire thing. And that story is when she first meets uh, Walter Bergner, my my great great grandfather, and that's who she ends up marrying. And and you know it's a it's a watered down wonderful thing. And there's some photos that are on there in the memories section. But I, I know how important it is for this whole story to be available for anybody that you know wants to read it, especially those that are related to her and understand what she went through. And so we, we went to the family history center downtown 
And we, you know, we went to the record and we saw this, this last page of it that was really watered down. And, and the, the file said read only. And so we asked a, a senior missionary to come over, you know, it was the, the, uh, the zone leader or whatever it was. Um, she came over and she looked at it and she said, Oh, this must be somebody important in history. Who is this? And I explained to her who it was. And she said, Oh, well, this is a read only file. That means, you know, you can't add anything to it or this can't be added to it. I'm like, well, this is her history. And I showed her the original prints of the photos that they had the digital prints of, of her standing there with Matthias Cowley and their little son in the wagon. And I, and I had the original print and they have the digital print. I'm like, look, this is, this is a legit story. I want to upload this. This is her memories. And this goes in the memory section. And they told me, oh, well, you need to email the special department. And so I, and they said, you know, ask for permission, you know, to add it and maybe they'll let you. And, and at that time I was pretty deep in like reading the actual history of the church. And I was like, yeah, right. They're not going to let me put this on there. They, they won't even put the real history of the church, you know, in, in, in their, in their books and in the preach my gospel and whatever. So why would they do that? So, but anyways, I did email as she directed me and I received a response back a few days later. And it said, you know, please submit the story to us. They wanted me to send the whole story to them. And this is before I brought it to, to you at Sunstone. And they said, we'll review it. And if it meets our terms and conditions, we'll post it on the memory section. And then I responded back and said, well, what's the terms and conditions? And they sent me back the terms and conditions. And it was several bullet points. You know, it can't have you know, nudity in it, can't have this and that. And one of the, one of the points that stood out said it must be heart turning. And that just really bothered me because it's so ambiguous. Like, what does that mean? You know? And, and so I, I just heart knew. Heart turning? Heart turning? Heart turning. It must be heart turning. And I was like, well, it's more stomach turning. I, but I don't understand what that means at all. I mean, I do, but that's, that's. I, I, I think faith promoting. I mean, I, I mean, I guess that would be like my best translation of it if I had to guess, you know, I, I mean, it's their terms and conditions said it must be heart turning. And, and then I, I could have submitted it and waited to see what they say. But I was, to be honest, I was probably, it was probably ridiculous for me to think this, but I was like, what if I send this to them? And then they like, you know, try to say that it's not credible and they, they change things on it or something, which I doubt they would. But then I brought it to you and, you know, you guys said, oh, well, we have somebody that we trust in the church history department. We'll send it over to them. And, and so I'm glad that that is, you know, I feel like it's in the right hands and that we're actually able to get it out there for people to read it. But I wish we could add it to the, to the family search, right? To the memory section, because that's where it des- deserves to be. It's credible. It's, it's her story in her own words. And, you know, I mean, if, we're, if family history is important, then why don't, why don't they let those that are experiencing the, you know, their life share that story in the family section? And I think this is a good point to, again, emphasize that Nora was a faithful LDS member her entire life. You know, she's not she's not trying to get back. She's not trying to cause controversy. She's just telling her story. That's that's the thing is it's just her own story in her own words and candid and accurate. She 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 held this story in a lot of the stuff was not told her whole life and her you know obviously her son knew that she had a very interesting history and was kind of encouraging her to record it and so she finally did. But yeah, I mean she had, they had several kids, like, you know, my great, great grandfather, Walter Bergner to her had a bunch of kids. They were faithful in the church. They were temple goers. They held callings. They were, you know, wonderful people. And, uh, you know, with all this messiness, if it happened, it happened. There's no reason to hide it. And that's what I, what I feel is important for people to be able to read what actually happened in her own words. And, um, yeah, she doesn't have an agenda at all. Like you said, Brian. Yeah. 
Well, leaving Nora aside for just a minute, I wanted to hit a few things from the rest of Matthias's life and then actually bring in Nora a couple places where she, she pops up again. And we have to go to the Reed Smoot hearings to really talk about Cowley's troubles. And obviously, he's been so active in performing marriages, and so they really want him to come back to Washington to testify. And I found a fantastic letter that he writes Abby, and it's on Colorado Mission letterheads. We have a, a general idea of where he is. And he tells Abby that he had a, quote, good, quiet rest, but he was going to a new place and told her that he, quote, didn't want either states at home nor outsiders any place to know where I am. And then you can really sense his frustration as kind of being caught between two places when he says, quote, I think it better that I don't go to Washington, D.C. to be fully ragged by the Inquisition. I don't intend to go unless the proper authority in the church thinks it's better for me, uh, thinks it better for the cause for me to go, close quote. And then he tells Abby he would give her an address where she could write to him, but that he wouldn't actually be there. And as a result, quote, uh, Abby could, quote, truly tell anyone who asks you that you don't know where I am. So he's basically in hiding because he knows way too much. And so then Second Manifesto is issued, and he's, again, he's, he's rarely with his wives. Um, Luella wrote in her journal, quote, Brother Cowley's still away, and the Smoot case continued, so I fear we will not have much of his company this summer. But we try to feel cheerful in existing conditions and acknowledge the hand of the Lord in the same. I only desire to prove true to the covenants I have made and be a companion in very deed to my beloved husband, for I know he is a man of God. And then this I found so interesting. Like, he and the wives are trying mostly by letter to kind of work through this together. And there's this great note, and apparently part of it is in his handwriting, part of it is in Luella's handwriting, and it says, quote, Our trials are but steps in the golden ladder by which we rightly ascend. We may at last gain the eternal light and walk forever in its fullness and beauty. All his earthly possessions were gone, meaning Matthias, and he feared the results of her knowledge. She had been so tenderly cared for all her life, but says Irving, a friend, advised him not to give sleep to his eyes until he had unfolded to her all his hopeless cases, and that, uh, and that was her answer with the smile of an angel. Is that all? I feared by your sadness it was worse. Let these beautiful things be taken, all this splendor, let it go. I only care for my husband's love and confidence. You shall forget in my affection that you were ever in prosperity. Only still love me, and I will add you to bear these little reverses with cheerfulness. And so this is, to give context, this is right when he's marrying Nora. And so he and the wives, the other wives that he's, he's already married to, are trying to figure out what to do. They've got a new wife, they've got him in hiding, and, you know, all of this stuff going on. And then, after the Second Manifesto is issued, there's pressure from Washington. And so in the October 1905 General Conference, he and Taylor are essentially forced to resign. And as you pointed out, Chad, they're essentially scapegoats. You know, they're not the only ones who had performed plural marriages after the manifesto. They weren't the only ones who had married new wives after the manifesto, but it's essentially they're they're chosen. And Cowley is certainly not resigned to his fate. In his journal, he wrote, quote, It is a very sad conference for me, for my wives and children, because our, because our brethren have seen fit to present our resignations which the brethren practically urged me to give last October, cause being to endeavor to vindicate the church from the responsibility of plural marriages since the manifesto by placing the responsibility largely upon Brother Taylor and myself. But we are not responsible, and God and our brethren know it. 
We may have been unwise in some things, but not willfully, nor have we neglected our duties, nor been out of harmony with the president of the church. So you can see, like, they knew what was up. They knew they were going to be the scapegoats. They weren't happy about it, but they just, they took one for the team, basically. So after that, he's in limbo. He moves around. He's not an apostle anymore. Well, he, I mean, he is, but he's not part of the quorum. So he's in this weird place. And, the, you know, the people in all these other places aren't sure what to do. They love hearing from him, but they know he's been disciplined to some extent. And so, you know, is, do we want him to come speak to us? And then what's weird is he is commissioned to write a biography of Wilford Woodruff. And so he gets his journals and he, he takes extracts from them. And Joseph S. Smith writes an endorsement of it. So he's he still has support, kind of, but not really. And what was interesting about Nora's story is when they finally decide to take more action against them, they write to Nora. And she writes a letter where she explains what happens. Um, her father, Ernest, writes a letter in his side of things. And it was so funny because I had read those earlier, and so I had new who Nora was, but I didn't really know even her story. And so that was so fun when you brought her history because it filled in all these other gaps. Hmm. And I got to see what the the rest of her story was. Um, so yeah. And then Cowley, just briefly, he is, so he is disfellowshipped. John W. Taylor's excommunicated. Uh, yeah. So he'd been, he'd been dropped from the quorum back in, in earlier. And so now he really is kind of an outcast. And so for a time, he um, he works at the Baldwin factory, and he's associated with the fundamentalists, but doesn't necessarily join them per se. Do the fundamentalists look towards Matthias Cowley as like this like beacon of light towards like poly polygamy and stuff, or what? He's considered one of the founding fathers of Mormon fundamentalism. I mean, they don't talk about this part. They don't talk about how he distance himself. Some some do, but most people, I think, saw him as a great defender, the apostle. I mean, they don't know that he was dropped from the quorum, then disfellowship, then you're going to talk about reinstatement. Wasn't he reinstated? Like, wasn't it like two he years was, later, he's like back in full fellowship? He, yeah, full like, fellowship. And that's, that's so interesting. And Brian can talk about why. But yeah, he, uh, Matthias Cowley, like, he's considered one of the OG rogue apostles. Yeah, so he's he's associated with these early guys and for a while he kind of supports them but it's not it's never a full association with them. And the turning point happens when so he's working for the radio plant here in Salt Lake and then he goes back to Chicago. And while there, away from everything, you can kind of see him wrestling through it and he finally makes his his ultimate decision where he distances himself from the fundamentalists. And he writes letters to a couple of them and encourages them to get back in good graces. Then he comes back to Salt Lake, and he meets up with John Widsow a few times. And Widsow is kind of his liaison with the current leadership. And so he goes to bat for him with Grant. And finally, after writing a letter where he essentially apologizes for everything, he is rebaptized and and reinstated and everything. And that's 1936. So a full 25 years after he's disfellowshipped, he finally returns to activity, not as an apostle, but is reinstated. You know what would be really fun is that everyone listening out there, if they went to yearofpolygamy.com on this episode and left a comment on what your tradition was taught, if anything at all, about him, because I think it would be interesting to, to hear what people know and, and share that. So if you want to do that, I think that would be a fun thing to 
kind of figure out. Hey, one thing I didn't talk about, and I don't want to like, you know, add too much to what we've already done because it's already really long, but Nora did get pregnant with his child too. And they had a kid and uh, Nora, you know, didn't want anything to do with him. He, he really treated her poorly. Like, I mean, she went off to school to the Utah Agricultural College and was like dirt poor. He kept promising her he was going to send her money, wouldn't send her money. She was starving and stealing vegetables off the temple grounds. When her father found out back in Juarez, what a crappy state she was in, sent the, uh, the you know, what, what a poor state she was in, uh, sent the, uh, the, a wagon full of food. And, and um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I just thought that it was important to note that like she did have a child with Matthias Cowley and that child, when he grew up, Matthias Cowley came to that child, Lou, Lewis, and asked him if he would like to be sealed to him and to her. And he chose to be sealed to my great, great grandfather, Walter Bergner and her and not to Matthias Cowley. And there's an interesting behind the scenes story that I'm guessing Nora probably didn't know about. And I'm guessing Lewis didn't know. So when Lewis is about to be baptized, Cowley feels like, well, this is fully my child. And so he goes to the apostles and says, I want him sealed to me. Like you mentioned, I want him to have my name and the apostles turn him down. Mm. So he's, you know, behind the scenes, he's trying to use what little influence he has left to, to make sure that Lewis is his and uh, he gets shut down. And I just want to say, you know, in doing this work and in my job, I've had to become very trauma informed. And when she describes her interactions with him, they're all like trauma responses. She's not, she's talking about, you know, not even being able to hear the words at the ceremony and like just running away. This fight, fight or flight kicks in. It's very clear that that was such a terrifying, like, course of thing to her, but it was also so normalized that I don't think she, saw it as that unusual, right? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how much information she had about, you know, the founders, you know, the original, you know, leaders of the church that had been doing that in Nauvoo and stuff as well. But the same idea of like, you know, visions and angels coming and saying that you're supposed to be sealed in me and all that. I mean, it's just kind of always been ingrained in the atmosphere up to that point, I would think. Yeah. And, and so it's just, it's interesting to see, you know, in Mormonism, we talk about generational trauma with polygamy too, because there is something that is carried on from generation to generation. And this is how that trauma happens. It's normalized trauma, right? You know, forcing young girls to marry older men in authority is something that has been passed down in some iteration to all of, and to all of us as, you know, generational Mormons. And, and it's, it's so sad. Okay, so um, Chad, that was so great. You had so many good things, but we are running on time. So we're talking about having your wife read the transcript of this, the entire transcript of her story, which I hope she does because that would be amazing to get just her voice out there. It's, su- it's such a really uh, vibrant, important voice, I think. But if we do that, we'll post that next. But how can people get a hold of you? Um, how can they find you? Can you give us the URL and all of that? Yeah. So um, voiceofourancestors.com is where I plan to post her whole story. And we'll put the, uh, and yes, we will record the full uh, audio transcript uh, reading the, the the whole story as well. And are you collecting other stories? Is it a project or is it just like a personal family project? Yeah. I, yeah. So I wanted to have a place to put her story um, since, you know, 
family search wouldn't let let it be added to the to the memory section on her file. And then I had an idea that there's got to be others out there that have similar stories that they also feel like they want to share from their ancestors. And so the idea is, yeah, if anybody else has a story similar to this, that's that could be added to it, then I would welcome that. We could add them to the to the website. I, I just want to encourage people to do that because I talk about this generational trauma, but one of the ways to heal that is for people to put this stuff out in the open, to talk about these things, to talk about the hard things that the people who raised us experienced. And it helps us to understand more about what they were going through and why they acted the way they did. And so I think it's a really important project, especially to our community who have a really, like we talked about at the very beginning of this podcast, you know, there was this concerted effort to erase the truthfulness, the hardships of this and to make, you know, Joseph Smith perfect and Brigham Young perfect. And all of that perfection is really damaged our community, I think. And, and it teaches us that people can't, you know, be flawed and make mistakes. And that's, that's been really unfortunate. So I really appreciate the project you're doing. Thanks. Thanks again, Brian and Chad for coming on. It was a great interview. Always good to be here again. And it's polygamy is so interesting that it's always fun when new documents and new stories that haven't been out there come to light. And that was so fun. I remember that day very clearly. I was already planning to come to the open house and I was actually parking my car when I get messages from Lindsay, call me stat. We have something interesting to look at. And I walked in and it, it was as billed. Yeah. And again, you guys check out me and Brian on the Sunstone Mormon history podcast. Uh, I can't believe people love that podcast as much as they do, but they do. I think we can both agree it's because of the great jokes. I mean, that's become clear by now. It's definitely not the jokes. Definitely not the jokes. Um, and Chad, thank you for coming on and share, like just, Bring us this history. It's super cool. Thank you, Lindsay. Thank you, Brian. I wanted to add you as a friend on Facebook, Lindsay, but you have way too many friends. It shuts me down every time I try it. It says, sorry, she has too many friends. Isn't that the dumbest thing? And then, you know, it's the... I've heard of that. Let me just say this. Like, it sounds such like it's such an arrogant thing to... Like, I met, like, my brother's new girlfriend, and she was like, hey, I'm going to add you on Facebook. And I just feel like such a tool being like, well, actually, I only have five, you know what I mean? Like, I can't add you because I'm too <laughs> Sorry, popular. I'm not able to do that. I'll have to email them and see if they could ex- extend my uh I'm going to cut somebody. Let me see. But here's the thing. Like, this is the this is the bummer thing about it, too, is every time I offend someone and I'm unfriended, I know it because then all of a sudden the friend requests are pro- popping up again. And I'm like, damn it, who did I offend again? Okay, so I'm going to wait for one of your podcasts to come out that something offensive was said, and then I'm going to hurry up and get on there and add you as a friend. That's, or whenever I talk about politics. So anytime, like give it a, give it a 24-hour window and you're in. So Sounds good. All right. Well, you guys have a good night. It's late over there, so... The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.